podcast. I am Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And welcome to episode 12. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Good Old Days Pod, on Twitter at The Good OD Pod, and we have a new YouTube channel that we're currently updating with all of our mini Saturday short stack series episodes. And if you just search for The Good Old Days Podcast, you'll find us on there. So subscribe, have a watch, let us know what you think. So if you're new to this podcast, Jasmine and I find and research interesting cases and topics that really just catch our eye. And uh, this particular episode, we are covering the Radium Girls. This is our first two-parter. So much information about the Radium Girls out there, we wanted to, to do them justice. So this is part one. Part two will be next week. So let's let's get into it. Um, some of my favorite sources. Kate Moore wrote a fabulous book called The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Uh, she wrote that in 2016, or at least it was published in 2016. So really relied heavily on that for uh, specific details, names, dates. It's just a fabulous book. Second favorite source for me was actually a 1987 documentary and it's a little crusty. It's called Radium City. I really enjoyed that documentary. And that gave me a lot of information on the Ottawa branch of the Radium Girls uh, tragedy. So we're going to get into uh, get into the nitty gritty here. Jasmine, what were some of your favorite sources? Kate Moore actually wrote one of my favorites as well. I didn't have access to that book, but she wrote a really good informative article for BuzzFeed, of all places, um, that called The Light That Doesn't Lie. And so I read that, got a lot of good information from it. And also NPR Illinois did a Radium Girls tragedy. It was kind of a hybrid article and interview of people that had relatives or some sort of relation back to specifically the Ottawa case. Well, without further ado, this is the story of the Radium Girls. At 5 p.m. on September 12, 1922, Amelia Molly Mejia's body finally gave out. A year-long battle against a mysterious illness left her dead in her New Jersey home. She bled to death from an uncontrollable hemorrhage in her throat. Her friends and family had watched helplessly for months as Molly crumbled before their eyes, enduring surgery after surgery, paying costly doctors and dentists to remove her diseased flesh, teeth, and bone without any improvement to show for it. During one appointment, Molly's dentist removed a piece of her jawbone with just his fingers and the rest of her jaw during another. By that point, her mouth never stopped bleeding. Her joints hurt. Her ears had become so swollen it was hard to tell what and where they were, and her bones had become frail. Though her family members were devastated, Molly's death was almost a mercy. The terrible agony she endured was finally over. She was just 24 years old. Her condition baffled her doctors, who tried to diagnose everything from pyrrhea to phosphorus poisoning, a common occupational disease. They settled, however, on syphilis as Molly's cause of death, which didn't actually match all of the symptoms Molly would experience, but was the closest and most familiar disease that could inflict the kind of damage they were seeing. 
This is also a diagnosis that would have shrouded Molly's death in shame and discouraged her family from probing any further. It was not until three years later when some of Molly's friends and co-workers from her job at Radium Luminous Materials Factory in Orange, New Jersey, started developing similar symptoms, followed by premature death, that the girls themselves and their doctors began to connect the dots. The first of many lawsuits was brought against United States Radium Corporation in 1925, as one worker after the other said it was the radium-laced paint they used while at the factory that was making them sick. This case, and others like it, would prompt nationwide changes to workplace health and safety and directly lead to the eventual establishment of OSHA. This is the story of the Radium Girls. For several decades after Marie and Pierre Curie discovered radium in 1898, the world became obsessed with the new element. Early proponents of radium were incredibly enthusiastic, touting it as a cure-all miracle drug capable of alleviating everything from impotence to anemia to lung cancer. People began experimenting with radium to observe its health benefits. Early researchers tested it on animals. One French veterinarian school studied in aging horses and reported positive findings. One Russian doctor claimed he cured blindness in two children by treating them with radium. The radium craze took hold of the masses from there. The wealthy trendsetters of the upper classes began to consume radium-laced products at an almost unsustainable pace, slathering makeup and lotion on their faces and bodies uh, in an effort to make themselves look younger. You could find radium, nicknamed sunshine in a bottle, in beauty products, toothpaste, water, watches, clock faces, chocolate, breads, tonics, etc., the public sentiment towards radium was so great by 1911, you could hardly tell the advertisements from the researched articles about radium in the newspapers across the country. A great example pulled from the Chicago Tribune, quote, the invigorating effects of the radium give a pleasant sense of well-being to the radioactivity absorbed by one's body, which is retained for several hours after treatment. Not only was it supposed to be good for you, Radium was also, also visually stunning. Radium glows in the dark, emitting an eerie, almost ghoulish incandescence. It dazzled people in the early 1900s, who were riding a wave of open-minded excitement over advancements in science, government, and society. By 1913, commercial entities started looking to capture some of that public fascination, Sabine von Shashoki figured out how to mix radium into a fluorescent paint, and it took no time to form United States Radium Corporation shortly thereafter. They opened Radium Luminous Materials Factory in Newark, New Jersey in 1916 and began producing hundreds of clocks and watches per day. They hired local young women to paint clock numbers with the expensive glowing paint, and they paid their girls well. With their higher wages, many of the women could afford to buy furs and fine clothes when they had cash to spare, as well as gorgeous dresses they sometimes wore to the factory before a night out so they would glow from all the factory radium dust. They were the it girls of their day. 
By this time, radium may have well been the most expensive substance on Earth, going for about $120,000 per gram. And that's in the early 1900s. <laughs> yeah. So it's like $2 million <laughs> or something like that today. It's crazy. Oof. The girls they hired were young, and they valued their dainty and graceful hands. Some speculate that they hired girls younger than 13, as young as 11, I've seen reported. But most were in their late teens and early 20s, living their best lives. They were getting paid better than their fathers, even, and working in better conditions. At least they thought so. And they were painting roughly about 250 dials per day, and they were painted per dial. Now, if they painted... You mean they were paid? They were paid per dial? Yes. What did I he say? You said they were painted per dial. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is not inaccurate at all, actually. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> That's not what I meant. Um, So women were were painting approximately 250 dials per day, and they earned, well, per dial they painted. They they earned about $3.75 a day in their time or about $75 a day in 2020. So in 1917, everything changes. The United States Congress voted to enter World War I, and as a result... The United States Radium Corporation was able to parlay a defense contract with the government because, lo and behold, it was super handy to have a bunch of little watches that you could actually read in the dark. They glowed in the dark. So the U.S. government, you know, they they sign a contract uh, and with the U.S. Radium Corporation and U.S. Radium will start producing Thousands of clocks every week, clocks, watches, and shipping them overseas to GIs. And a lot of the young women who they really considered this as their civic duty. This is how they were contributing towards the war effort. I read in in Kate Moore's book that some of the women would like scratch their names and addresses in like little messages so the GIs uh, could read it. And even some of them got letters in return. I mean, how what well, that would be a pretty cool love story, you know, uh, a GI. Is in you know on the front on the front in France he gets a, a wristwatch and and sees the name of a young woman they meet and they fall in love and and they get married I mean it sounds like a Hallmark movie it sounds like a Hallmark movie and then you know her yeah and then all the bad stuff happens so anyway <laughs> make a good book or movie <laughs> in 1917. Radium Lumis Materials, that that factory in Newark, New Jersey, well, U.S. Radium is going to open a second location to handle the spike in demand. And they open that second location in Orange, New Jersey, and they start hiring women all over the county. Let's talk about how these were the it girls. Let's talk about what the wages these girls were getting, what that was doing for their families. I mean, these girls, they were they were like the cool girls. They would that so the this they worked first of all it was called a studio which was super cool right so you're going in beautiful spaces it's supposed to be a clean work environment you know we've covered uh we've covered we covered the triangle shirtwaist factory we we know that conditions in factories at this point they were probably getting better right thanks to the labor movement however if you could find a clean place to work that you're getting double the pay. Like one of the women who was interviewed in that Ottawa documentary, the uh, Radium City, she said she was working at a bakery and making half of what she ended up making at the Radium Dial. So you're talking doubling your salary 
they finally have money. They're buying great shoes. They're, you, you know, on their way to walk to work. You know, they look they look fashionable when they walk home. They literally glow in the dark. So it's just a really cool, like, the, the city, the, the surrounding neighborhoods, these girls are patroning, you know, uh, gin joints and and uh, jukebox, you know, whatever. Like they're going out to party. They're they're the it girls. They're having a great time, and they actually have some cash to help out their families too. So it was like the like in their eyes, it was the perfect gig. I was reading, I think it was in the NPR um, piece. They said because they're young, I mean, think of the age they are. If they're as young as on paper, thirteen, or like maybe as young as eleven. They're excited to like be there. This is like a cool new thing that they can use. That's when this like painting their teeth and face and like all of that comes into fashion because it's fun. It makes being at work fun because you can literally glow in the dark. I mean, how much do like kids love glow in the dark stuff? I think I had glow in the dark dinosaurs on my ceiling even when I went to college. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> This it could life could not get better at that at that moment, you know. But unfortunately, uh, we start to see some early warnings, even by one of the founders of the U.S. Radium Corporation, Sabine von Schotzky. Apparently, in the fall of 1918, one of the employees of the Orange Studio in in New Jersey, Grace Fryer. She had a really strange interaction with Sabine von Schotzky. It's business as usual. It's a normal workday. And what Grace was taught, what all the girls were taught when they first started, was you needed to get your brush bristles the right, the right width, the right, the right point. You needed a point on that brush so you could really finely paint these numbers on the watch faces. And it was called lip pointing. So you would take the brush, put it between your lips and your tongue, moisten it so it's nice and flat, put it in the radium paint, and then start painting a number on the dial, okay? Some women would do that as many as three times per number. Some women were able to get through a couple of numbers before they had to do it. So it was lip, dip, paint. Lip, dip, paint. Grace Fryer is doing her job. She's lip pointing. All of a sudden, she looks up, and Sabine von Schotzky is staring at her. And he says, don't do that. And she's confused, because this is literally what they taught her on her first day of work. She's confused. And she says, what? And he goes, don't do that. That'll make you sick. And then all of a sudden, he just runs out of the shop and disappears. So that's like the first first warning. And keep in mind, Sabine von Schotzky invented this paint. He invented it five years prior. Alongside Grace Fryer, Molly Mejia, and three of her sisters, Alvina, Quinta, and Irma would also work for U.S. Radium, first at the Newark location and then at the Orange location. And Molly, unfortunately, is going to be the first of the women to get sick, just like was essentially, I guess, foreshadowed or forewarned by Sabine. And it's it's going to go from concern all the way into the family's worst fear as they literally watch Molly disintegrate in front of them. She has to leave her job um, due to ongoing issues with a toothache and aching bones to the point where she can't walk. And this isn't just like your run of the mill, like you're a little bit achy. It's described as being just 
pure agony. And because the problem starts in her mouth, Molly first tries a dentist. She thinks maybe there's something wrong there. She buckles down on her dental hygiene routine. And, well, the the dentist that she goes to, Joseph Neff. Mm-hmm. Neff? Neff. Yeah. Yep. So a Dr. Joseph Neff, um, he's going to try and cure her problems. So what he starts to do is pull teeth. He thinks that might be the problem. Maybe there's a bad tooth there, but it doesn't work. He pulls tooth after tooth. And rather than actually help anything, it's going to make them worse from what seems like unbearable agony goes to, well, like past a 10 for her and she can't stand it. And rather than heal, rather than any wounds in her mouth heal, it's just going to essentially be filled with pus and blood and just horrendous, right? And I'm squirmish about the dentist anyway, so this is particularly particularly a tough, tough thing for me to kind of read about and go through. But her wounds never heal, and the pain just gets worse and worse and worse over time. She then starts to go to doctors, and they can't help either. They tell her that she's just got rheumatism or whatever else they can think of to kind of brush her off. And at most, she comes home with some aspirin, which is not going to help the kind of pain she's in, because what none of these doctors realizes that the pain is coming from the inside out the radium deposits in her system from the lip painting apparently radium and calcium are pretty similar and our bones absorb radium like calcium but the radium eats away at the bones so it's basically like you're rotting from the inside out lovely and i mean for almost all these women it always starts i have a toothache Mm -hmm. i gotta go to the dentist we pull that tooth. The wound doesn't heal. All of a sudden, there's jo- pain in the jaw. There's pain in the shoulder. There's pain in the hip and the feet. All of a sudden, these women have to walk with canes. All of a sudden, they have no teeth left. Their jaws are coming out. I mean, it's insane how quickly because they're I, I, I heard I think it was the I listened to the podcast uh, episode on the radium girls, and they said they were ingesting the amount of radium equivalent to the size of a honeybee every day. So six days a week. Think of how much you know. If even if you worked there for two years, just think about how much radium you would have to ingest at that point. So you're literally. I mean, it's it's crazy. It is. It's crazy. It is. Yeah. And that's you know exactly what'll happen to Molly from losing her tooth to losing her entire lower jaw wasn't a massive step. One of those trips to the dentist, she goes and he goes to just do an examination and her jaw literally crumbles in his hand and he it gets to the point where she he can literally just pull it out with his fingers. Oh, I just can't. That is just the worst. I have a big issue with teeth. Oh, it's just not it's like good. this is my worst nightmare like of any of the ways any of the things we've talked about this is my absolute worst nightmare and it doesn't stop there like she then has no lower jaw and from different reports i've read and pieced together apparently like a giant abscess forms in its place so she's got no lower jaw no teeth there it goes from there up to the roof of her mouth and then over to her ears and i don't know if you've seen the pictures of her but she's basically got like no neck and just this giant like swollen like it looks almost alien like like bulbous thing coming out of her where her jaw should be um and what apparently was happening there is this like infection and abscess and whatever is going on in her body is 
literally eating through her jugular vein. So it's like slow and painful to the point where eventually it just eats enough through it that she starts bleeding and they can't stop it because on top of all of this, she's anemic from the the radiation. So they can't stop and clot her blood and she bleeds out in her own mouth. And that's how she dies. Ugh. It's horrendous. Ugh. It's horrendous and horrific. Yikes. And the best thing that the doctors could say was, oh, we think she had syphilis. This was a syphilis-related death. <laughs> Slaps it on her death certificate and go on their way. And that's it. And, I mean, that em- that embarrasses the family, which, by the way, like most of the people who knew her, I mean, they really described her as a good girl. So it was it was confusing. Um. And it was shocking. But as a result of that, you know, a family, a good Catholic family isn't going to trot out the fact that their daughter has died of syphilis. Right. right? So they're going to they're going to put her to rest and just like hope that, you know, the next sisters can do better, basically. So it goes by, you know, Molly's death is essentially put to rest. Everyone assumes it's syphilis and they move on. But unfortunately, that's not the end of of the troubles of these women who are working for U.S. radium. No, and I mean, as they're watching Molly crumble in front of them, her sisters are starting to experience some of the same pains that Molly did. And how terrifying is that? If you're watching someone, basically what's going to happen to you happen in front of your eyes and you start to feel your tooth hurt a little bit and your feet hurt a little bit. And it's not just her sisters that are feeling that. It's her co-workers, her friends that are continuously checking in on her to see how she's doing. I mean, Grace Fryer being one of them. And by this point, Grace has had some serious pains in her feet and legs to the point where she can't really walk all that well. Um, And it's just... It's yeah. I mean, I can't imagine not even just going through what Molly went through, but watching that, knowing, oh, this might be happening to me because I'm experiencing some of those same symptoms. Like, what do you do? There's no, they don't know what it is. Like, what do you do? So let's talk a little bit about what Dr. Neff did for Molly because at first he thought, you know what? This looks like Fossey Jaw. Because phosphorus poisoning was prevalent at this time in the early 20th century. And it was a very similar experience. Teeth falling out, gums bleeding, abscesses in the mouth. And so he goes to U.S. Radium and he's like, yo, what's what's in this paint? Because, you know, she's obviously told him how she does her job, the lip pointing. What's in this paint? Well, they refuse to give Dr. Neff the, you know, what their concoction is, what their recipe is. But they say... No phosphorus is used in this paint. And so he goes, okay, well, shoot. We're back at square one. I guess it's just syphilis. You know, I mean, that, and and Dr. Neff, that's that's the guy who, when uh, they're taking U.S. radium to trial, he goes to U.S. radium and he's like, if you pay me off, I'll convince these girls to drop the suit. Which, despicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, didn't the... Uh... The, the man who was poisoning his employees call him immoral. I think that's what I read in the Kate Moore book. He was like, you have no morals, sir. Now let's keep the lip pointing up. <laughs> Great job, girls. Great job, girls. You're doing you're doing fantastic. Molly, when Molly dies, like not a big fuss is made. But like I said, the the women who worked with her and knew her 
did not know her as a girl who was going around, sleeping around, who could potentially contract syphilis. They didn't really believe that. And all of a sudden, now Molly's sisters start getting aches and pains. Some of Molly's coworkers start developing aches and pains, just like what you were saying. And so people start to talk. They start they start wondering what's really in this this paint. And as a result, U.S. Radium, well, they go into a little bit of a hush panic, right? So what happens? What happens after that? So nothing really happens for another two years. I mean, there's lots of rumors circulating and U.S. Radium is able to kind of push those out of the way as like girlish rumors. Like you just keep talking like you can see our staff is perfectly healthy because behind the scenes, they're letting go women and girls who are showing any kind of symptoms. So if you start to have a bit of a limp or there's something wrong, bye. Sorry, we don't need you anymore. It's so causing you talk in the shop. It's it's hurting productivity. We need you out of here. Yeah. And there's really nothing to protect them. So they're out. Exactly. There's no workplace protections. Um, so that's it. So when people like enter US radium, if they're gonna have a look around, nothing on the surface of things seems wrong. But two years later, by that point, of course, many other people have started having severe symptoms. There I don't know if there's been any other deaths by that point. And it's hard to tell because I mean, people would leave and then get sick and die later on. And none of the doctors said it was radium poisoning because radium poisoning wasn't exactly. a thing. So, so tuberculosis, lung cancer, uh, abscess in the jaw, which led to gangrene. I mean, you're getting all sorts of crazy uh, causes of death. So it's not leading back to the company. And they're just they just keep on trucking. So no idea how many people die in this time. But 1924, they decide that the rumors are too much. They need to do an independent investigation. So they hire an outside company. They have them come and do a study. And surprise, surprise, the independent study finds that the radium in the paint is to blame for all of the sickness that they're seeing among their workforce. Uh, that report, so when Arthur Roeder, the president who took over after they ousted um, the original founders of the company in 1921, he contacted Cecil and Catherine Drinker, two Harvard uh, researchers. So they came in and did the – they basically uh, uh, got most of the dial painters um, together Catherine Drinker took them into the women's restroom and had them stripped down, and she gave them a thorough examination, saw their entire bodies were covered with radium dust, like they glowed in the dark, uh, essentially determined that they them ingesting the paint is giving them radiation poisoning, and then the company in turn comes out with their own study, like basically falsified, like there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. And uh, the drinkers, they get super pissed and, you know, had to find alternative ways to publish publish their own study. But they do get it published. And that's it really for another year. So now we're at 1925. And guess what happens? Their chief chemist dies, Edwin Lumen. So a man this time. And at that point, they're like, oh, well, maybe we actually need to do something now. It's not just like these disposable women. A man's died. So this is serious. Classic, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. Unbelievable. Um, so then they have a doctor come in, and this is Dr. Harrison Martland, and he's going to devise tests to check for radium exposure. So Martland, December 5th, 1925, published 
just a thing, I guess, I don't know, like a journal article called Some Unrecognized Dangers in the Use and Handling of Radioactive Substances with a special reference to the storage of insoluble products of radium and mesothorium in the reticuloendothelial system. Very doctor <laughs> Um, but basically he is talking about like his observance of the, of the girls in Newark and orange. Um, and at that point he said that there are five deaths that he's observed and 12 living cases. All of that is going to be used as evidence in the court case. Grace Fryer, Catherine Schaub, Edna Boltz, Abina, and Quinta Magia all followed suit after Marguerite Carlo filed a lawsuit for $75,000 against United States Radium Corporation. And that was on February 5th in 1925. It's going to take three long years of depositions, examinations, testimony, countless continuances, because, you know, whenever there was a continuance made, the United States Radium Corporation did a little happy dance because they were hoping the girls were going to die before, you know, any of the, the suits had to be settled. But in 1928, U.S. Radium settles with the women. So that's Marguerite Carlo, Grace Fryer, Catherine Schaub, Edna Boltz, Abina, and Quinta Magia. So they settle. Um, and as a result, so yes, th their case ends. But the radium industry is able to continue unimpeded. There, were, there was never any criminal charges filed. There were never any criminal rulings judged against the radium corporation. And so they're able to continue business as usual. Well, and it took, I mean, it took them until 1927 to even get a lawyer. So although they're doing all of this, they don't get Raymond Berry until 1927, which is like, what, five years after Molly had died and two years after they started to try and file suits. And then the reason they took the settlement, well, was due to because was due to them dying. Like they were worried they were going to die before the case found a conclusion. So it was either kind of like let the case die out because the women were dying, but there's a guilt there in settlement. So that's what they said they were aiming for was to show that there was a problem and some guilt with their settlement. Well, I mean, it just goes back and forth and back and forth. Like the both the U.S. Radium Corporation and Radium Dial, which is in uh, Ottawa, Illinois, they they just kept admitting guilt and showing. I mean, the the the, the evidence just kept mounting over and over and over again that they knew. Because while, you know, when Marguerite Carlo brings her suit in 1925, this makes newspapers. And all of a sudden, the Ottawa Radium Girls, who had been working in that factory since 1922, well, they start getting antsy. They start getting scared. So in 1925, what do you know? Uh, Joseph Kelly he brings in some doctors, performs some tests on some of the, the Ottawa, you know, the dial painters, and they never disclose to the girls their findings. They never disclose that over half of those women were radioactive at that point. Um, and unfortunately, the statutes of limitations start running out on, on the women in New Jersey. Uh, the New Jersey factories are going to close. 
However, U.S. radium is not found legally liable. So they're able to go on supplying radium to clock factories in Connecticut and in the Northeast. And business continues as usual for United States Radium Corporation. And that is where we are going to end part one. And we will pick up in Ottawa in next week's part two of The Radium Girls. If you liked what you heard today, please head to your favorite podcast platform. Drop us a five-star review. If you have any episode suggestions, feel free to message us on social media or send us an email at thegoodolddayspod at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Thank you all so much for your support. Uh, Jasmine, do you have anything to add? I think that's it. Um, Apart from, again, if you want to find us on socials, we're at just search the Good Old Days podcast on all of the platforms will come up. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, we hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week. Looking forward to part two of the Radium Girls next Wednesday. So thank you all so much. Enjoy your week. Goodbye. Bye.